Nation. Providing you with the practical tools and expert knowledge to optimize your strength, health and mindset inside and out. With your host, Steve Katarzy. Hey guys, welcome back to the show. It's Steve here and we are almost 100 episodes in. It's been a fantastic ride so far and I love what this podcast is standing for, what we're creating, the conversations we're having and most importantly the guests we're able to attract as a result of our pedigree. Today's no exception. Today we have the one and only Chris Duffin. Now, Chris Duffin is a fascinating character, one that you're going to want to get to know. Why? Well, his backstory, his upbringing just blows your mind. I mean, I've never heard someone who's had it so tough with no money, no home, living basically in the sticks for the majority of his life. And you just can't fathom what challenge and depression and difficulty is until you hear his story puts your life into context a little bit. But it's not just about that. Chris is a world record holder. He's a recently retired powerlifter. He's an innovator and inventor of specialty equipment in the shrimp space. He's an incredible educator with thousands of videos on how to work out properly, be strong and manage pain through training. He's also an author now with his latest autobiography and self-improvement book, The Eagle and the Dragon, having just landed on all major bookstores. This conversation was amazing. We had tons of wisdom, guidance, and principles offered across mindset, life in general, training, rehab, all whilst digging into Chris's unbelievably challenged upbringing. So worth a listen, guys. Incredibly inspiring. I hope you enjoy it. And guys, if you've got any questions at all, you know what to do. Hit us up on the Adaptation Facebook page and I'll make sure that Chris is involved in those conversations. Now, just sit back and enjoy the wisdom coming at you from the one and only Chris Duffin. Adaptation. Listen, man, it is uh, an absolute pleasure and honor to have you on this show, Chris. Well, bloody hell, you're... You're such a legend, and a legend I hadn't even realized how much of a legend you were until I read your book. Your book is insane. Your life is incredible. Just so oh, crazy. Yeah, thank, well, one, thank you for taking the time to, uh, to read the book. I, I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I, I, it's been a, a passion project of mine to want to do this for, for a long time because you know, all the conversations we have out there, at least I have, are usually around the physical nature of strength. And um, I have had a an incredibly unique uh, life experience. I'm not going to say worse or better than anyone else, right? But because uh, we all have our own struggles and own challenges. Um, but uh, definitely a, a scope of life experiences that most people will never see. And from that, you know, uh, I've developed a lot of philosophy uh, that's brought me a lot of success in a number of fields from being a world-class, you know, athlete to doing world-class turnarounds of companies and being an entrepreneur and all, all sorts of things. And, um, and, and it comes down to those other aspects of strength that are, 
arguably more important than the physical nature, um, which is which I think. But everything needs to be done in concert. But, uh, you know, the the mental, the emotional, the even, you know, spiritual aspects of, of strength. Well, I'd love that to be the theme of the discussion. Not only is it an opportunity for everyone to just hear a little bit more from you, the legend Chris Duffin, but I'd, I'd love to really emphasize adversity and strength because reading your book, I um, didn't know what to expect, Chris. I, um, you know, being known predominantly as a power lifter, at least in, in my context, in terms of how I know you, um, you anticipated a lot of conversation around training. And it really wasn't that. I mean, I think you're a great writer. I, I, th I, I think I had like two or three pages in the book around <laughs> training. That's, and I think, yeah, that definitely surprised a lot of people that have picked up the book so far. <laughs> it's been incredible. So look, if, if it's okay with you, Chris, what I'd love to do, um, well, look, first and foremost, there are more questions than we have time to answer because <laughs> it just got me going reading that book. Um, but if you're up for it, maybe we can split this into a front half and a back half. Maybe the front half, let's just explore some of the things around your childhood and developing your mindset that you have today. Let's talk about strength in that context. And then the back half, I think it would be remiss of us to not poke and just ask some curious questions around your training and the cool innovation at Kabuki Strength. So does that feel like a Abs decent flow? That does. Absolutely. Cool, man. Well, listen, maybe the be best way to start for the guys that have been living under a rock, which was me up until recently, uh, maybe they can, maybe you can level set with them. It's August 2019. Um, what's your life look like today? So let's not give the backstory just yet. Just what does a day in the life of Chris Duffin look like today in terms of setup, focus, family, priorities? And how do you think folk describe you and your reputation, whether it be your friends or your fans? So let's just give everyone a bit of context. Okay. So, you know, first and foremost is just waking up. And I, I really love the fact that um, I have the time in my life to spend my mornings with my family. I've got my beautiful wife and three kids at home. And uh, so I'm, uh, I'm a little late getting into the office every morning. We'll, we'll say that. Um, so, you know, normally I'm rolling in around nine or 10, sometimes 11-ish, depending on the day. Uh, but the first couple hours of the day is actually dedicated to uh, spending time with uh, with the family, getting the kids ready for school, not during the summer, uh, but uh, and uh, driving them in and, and doing all that. So I I really appreciate just kind of starting the day that way, because when I worked the corporate career, it was definitely didn't have the opportunity. It was up early and cracking at the office before anybody even woke, you know, mm. and uh, I've got uh, essentially four different businesses uh, that I'm responsible for. Um, that I've that I've co-founded. So the the largest one being Kabuki Strength, which is a uh, an authority in the strength training world around biomechanics, movement principles. It's a coaching and education company mixed with uh, manufacturing of specialty uh, equipment for biomechanics, improving those for athletics. Uh, we deal with MLB, NFL, NBA, Tour de France, Olympic athletes in uh, throwing disciplines, um, uh, NHL, the, the list goes on and on if you don't get <laughs> in colleges, I don't know, like 500 plus colleges we wow. deal with. Uh, so this is both on the education and equipment side. Uh, our staff travels and lectures. I go with them on occasion, um, but trying to really uh, to uh, knock that down. And then I've got a few uh, side projects, um, 
I'm partner in a supplementation company because I'm, I'm a big supplement junkie and I, there's a lot of issues in that industry. Uh, and so I want to, you know, go about doing something right and advertising and marketing it correctly and doing all the right things. Um, you know, that's just the icing on the, on the top. It's not something that's the answer for, for everything. And people need to be more open about that. And then, uh, recently started a, uh, uh, anybody that follows our content, foot mechanics is a, is a really big deal for us. It's our second in our hierarchy of, of principles. We're at Kabuki, a very principle-based organization in regards to uh, how we approach things. Um, so foot mechanics is number two there. And so I've recently uh, 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 partnered up and uh, co-founded a company that's releasing stuff in the footwear. Um, so pretty, pretty small as of yet. And then obviously I've got my, uh, book and speaking engagements and, and all that as well. So, um, so that, uh, it sounds like a lot, but I'm more of like a consultant to each of those. So, you know, I come in, I do a little bit of whatever is appropriate. Um, you know, maybe my engineering staff hits me up or, um, my operations managers got some questions about production control because my past history is very extensive in those backgrounds. And then I spend uh, two or three hours out in the gym training, prepping for my next goals, which is um, right now I, I'm a retired powerlifter. So I retired three or four years ago and I do basically feats of strength. Um, so they're, they're mixes of covering things that require a lot more requirements around uh, recovery and adaptation. Uh, than like just showing up at a meet or feats that have a lot more um, tax on uh, work capacity as it relates to things as well. And I pair those with charity. So everyone what we do is paired with uh, charity. And oftentimes, once you read the book, you'll understand why I chose the charities that I do. Um, but they're very uh, near and dear to 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 my heart. And uh, so um, so we do some of those locally and some of those that uh, are uh, larger charities on an international basis. So um, that's that's kind of what my uh, my day looks like. It's 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 a combination of many fires and and achieving a lot whilst yes. somehow achieving some balance, which it sounds like a great place to be right now. It is. And it's been a culmination, been a long time to uh, to get here. Um, but uh, it's. You know, the, the companies are an output really of of my personal philosophy and creating that culture and drawing and drawing those people to it um, that can be uh, that want to live that live that world, walk it. And that's allows me uh, a lot of trust ability to actually step away from, like I said, and operate in a little bit more of a consulting role than a uh, a manager, an owner type uh, role to control these things, because I've got people that that own it and live it because they're passionate about, uh, the principles and philosophies that, uh, that are, that, uh, are near and dear to our heart. Um, you know, one of the, you know, like with Kabuki strength, our, our logos living better through strength. And, uh, it just started as a tagline on emails. Cause that's, I just sign off an email and I'd be like, God, I hope this person live better through strength. And, uh, and that really is the underlying principle. And that kind of delves into, um, you know, the past, I can give a, uh, a nice, try to give a, a 90 second dissertation on kind of my, my upbringing or some of those things, if you'd like. It, but, won't, uh, it won't be a 90 second one. Yeah. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> um, before, before you do that, um, and I know that this can be an awkward 
question for some folk to reflect on what others think of you. Um, but for the general guy, the person who knows who Chris Duffin is, what do you think comes to mind, whether it be your feats, um, uh, who you are, what you stand for? What do you think people think of you? Um, I think the two biggest ones is, we, you know, just the massive amount of content on movement that we produce. So it's as, as an educator, maybe it's three. So an educator, uh, an inventor. Um, I brought a lot of products to the market that have been uh, game changers that nobody's seen before uh, that have really gone well. So those those two areas is like seeing as trying to drive positive change within the strength training world. And the other is definitely around like the feats that I do. Um, so, you know, there's the Guinness world record for deadlifting, uh, uh, for the sumo deadlift for a thousand pounds, uh, which I did for almost three reps actually. Um, Ridiculous. you know, deadlifting, deadlifting 675 pounds for 20 reps and, you know, roughly 30 seconds, uh, following that up with another 10 conventional right after that, uh, things like squatting 800, 800 pounds, not once, not twice, every single day for 30 days straight. Um, you know, just things that nobody else has done or even contemplated doing or won't do because like that's not really possible. Um, and, uh, I say that having done it, but I, going back, I'd be like, I, I don't think that's, that's impossible. <laughs> uh, I did, uh, deadlifted 400 kilogram, 880 pounds every single day. Uh, as a fundraiser for Alex's lemonade stand, um, as day 17, I tore a hamstring off. So, uh, that, uh, but I did it every single day until that point. Um, so those are the things like these just crazy off the wall things that nobody else can even fathom. Um, I'm known for that. And then, like I said, being an educator and innovator in the field, innovator, inventor in the field. Hence the reason we've got you on this podcast, Chris. And <laughs> and you know what? You may yeah, I think you make anyone who's listening, including myself, just sound woefully weak in every context. Well, that, that that's not my intent. A I know it's not. I know it's not. But when you say you've done a thousand pounds, why I do those things though is to show people like what is possible to push the limits of human performance and help people realize that they can you know, we can do a lot more than we think that we can, you know, if you put your focus and actually develop a plan and work it, um, and have the right tools. So the right methodology, um, <laughs> uh, the right equipment and then have the right mindset, those three things, you can do amazing things. And that's part of why I do those. So part is charity and the other is to to help people like push past their their self-imposed perceptions of what we're capable of. Because I'm, I'm it's not like I'm a young and spry, like gifted athlete. Like I'm 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 42 years old, broken up, retired power lifter, you know. So, um, yeah. Awesome. Well, let's let's. Um... We're going to get back into a couple of those things because I do have questions, but let's get back to the beginning then. So we've seen said people got a sense of who you are, what you stand for, what you've achieved, what you're known for. Your childhood, as I read through your book, it was, um, it was hard to read at times. Um, there are many mentally challenging times I can see within your life. Um, 
I'd love to dig into that, but maybe you could just give us a scene set. So, uh, you know, just from my perspective, what I grabbed from this is, you know, living in the wild, never settling in one place, an untraditional family setup, very hand to mouth for much of your early life. Maybe we can dig into that a little bit and give people a context that whilst you've achieved such great things, it wasn't always that easy. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that was that was it. I mean, we literally grew up in the mountains, uh, foraging for food, hunting animals. Um, this was in the Northern California area. Um, and there was, you know, there was obviously a lot of alcohol abuse, drug abuse, uh, you know, encounters with murderers, a serial killer, uh, dealt with human trafficking, um, and things just never really got better. Uh, but, uh, um, there, there came a point I, I ended up putting myself, uh, through, through college. I did very well in high school. Um, and while I was going to college, I, things got like, once I left the household, things got really worse. And so I ended up taking custody of my three younger sisters and raising all of them while I worked on my engineering degrees and my MBA and then started my, 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 my career. So, you know, it's, it's just different, you know, when people talk about, you know, and it's not a knock on anyone, but you see people, oh, I'm poor today. And it's, they've got their gaming system. They've got their smartphones. You know, we literally like would have to hike to a spring to fill jugs with water, to, to drink with water or take the gallon jugs down to the Creek and fill them with water and set them up on a, on a rock in the sun. So you could dump it over your head to bathe yourself. Um, we're talking a family of six living on less than $5,000 a year. Uh, and you know, wearing the same clothes that are falling off you, you know, shoes with your feet sticking out the sides or no shoes or, <laughs> um, which was, I did a lot of times running through the mountains and living in condemned homes, living in tents. Uh, you know, we're talking, you know, buildings with no electric, no running water, nothing, nothing inside, literally just a frame. Um, uh, and a lot of, a lot of tent camping, uh, on occasion, you know, we would be in a home that had have electricity or something like that. And, uh, later years in, in, in high school, we finally had a stable environment in so much as we lived in a, a, a mobile, ho a rundown mobile home, but it had running water, electricity, uh, didn't have doors on the inside or anything like that. And we had to put plastic over the windows because they were just like open drafty stuff. But it was like a solid stable environment for like four years, which was something pretty awesome for me. Um, you know, having, having that, and that was a, that was a big win for our family to, uh, to get that. I mean, the house was when we moved out, uh, it was burnt down by the fire department cause it was, uh, uh, not habitable, but for us, it was fantastic. So, <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, there's a lot of, oh, I have no idea. Uh, 2030, something like that. Gosh. Easy. Yeah. And when, when we say move, we're not going from, we're not going from home to home. We're going from, um, you know, tents to, you know, literally outdoors at times. Right. And, and dealing with the weather as well. Yeah. So we had a, uh, usually we, during the winter, we'd try to get into some place that, you know, had, but there was, you know, that we could, 
it, it was some sort of home, like I said, you know, um, but there was winters we spent living in a, a 16 foot trailer, that size family. There's literally no room. Like I slept in the back of the, the pickup truck freezing, you know, freezing while there's snow and ice on the ground. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, moving, we, you're the forest service. If they found you would, you, you were allowed to camp in one spot for two weeks. So we'd say we're camping and they come back and check in two weeks and uh, you'd have to move on. So we'd stay in a spot till the first service found us. Then two weeks from that, we would, they would move, pick up and move to another location. And then, uh, yeah, we moved, we started just North of San Francisco when I was a young child. So we lived in a, uh, 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 the, up in the mountains, my, my parents were learning to grow, grow, uh, weed commercially for a, for a living. That's kind of what they did. And so we we're out there living kind of homestead, homestead style, um, with, uh, some friends of theirs that were building a house. They were living in teepees at the time and it was a place you had to hike into, you couldn't drive a vehicle into. And so it was, uh, it, we both, both of us, both families lived together in this home that again, it was being constructed. There was no, no, no utilities or anything like that. Um, and then, uh, from there kind of continually drifted north. We ended up in, uh, outside of this place called Humboldt County, which, uh, Humboldt County used to be known as one of the best, you know, weed growing places in the, uh, in, probably in the world, definitely in the nation here in the U S. So it was sought after we lived on a, just the County over, uh, way deep into the mountains, kind of on the border there. Um, they air traffic over and as we were running around the woods, you know, we'd always have to be on the lookout cause people disappeared. You'd run into a crop and there'd be people out there with machine guns and stuff like that. And people disappeared. Um, so it was always pretty, uh, pretty risky on things like that. And then, uh, we got taken by the, by the police for, for, you know, the police came in and found us, uh, took all of us kids to, uh, child protective services, uh, put my mom in jail and we spent a year before they recovered us, which there's a lot more depth to that. I just, I'm not sure if I want to get into that in the podcast. Uh, you're, um, familiar with it from reading the book, but that, uh, I can get a little emotional kind of talking about that dives into the human trafficking stuff. So anyway, but you, you, you were separated, um, you and your sisters separated from each other and from your family for yeah, a year or so for a year. Yep. Which was a pretty dark time for me. I mean, we, it sounds like my family was horrible. They weren't like my mom, like was incredibly intelligent. My father was my stepfather. They just didn't fit with society. My mom didn't want to be a part of society. She had some bad things happen to her as a child and just didn't, uh, it was authority did not sit well with her. And so she was always looking for some way to find a living and a way to, to, uh, to be outside. So we, you know, our favorite place was the library and we would just stack up with books and we'd read constantly every evening by candlelight or flashlight. And that was, that's what we did. Mom and stepdad would play music, re do poetry, uh, you know, uh, art, all sorts of stuff. So it was, uh, it was, it was just very, very different. And, um, my mother is definitely the strongest person I've ever, ever met despite, you know, many of her, <laughs> uh, faults. 
like I said, I would never put my my kids even anywhere close to that environment. But I I wouldn't take back my you know the the story or life that I've had by any means. But you know when I when I look at my my kids and imagine my them being in the situation I was in at their age, like it it gets me you know, very, very emotional, just kind of thinking about them having to persevere through those situations, even though I want them to learn to persevere through the situations, if like that, if they come up. But, um, it's, uh, it was, it was a different crazy time. And I, I, I knew it at the time. And I said the, uh, that year being, so my point being, we were with family all the time. Like that's, you know, there wasn't mom and dad have to go to work or whatever. Like we were, we were out working together, either cutting wood, uh, take it, tending to the crops. Like we, we worked together, we lived together, like everything was always there. And then all of a sudden, like you're, everything else was chaos. We were constantly on the move. The rest of the world, like was a, was a chaos around us because of the situation that we lived, lived in. But that was, that was my center, you know? And, uh, when that happened, it really, uh, really threw me for a loop. Uh, and I, I don't think it, uh, helped, you know, the, uh, you know, essentially, you know, with the, within a year before that, um, one of the many, many deaths of friends and stuff happened, uh, uh, at that time. But I had a, uh, uh, my best friend, I was supposed to go spend the night with him and, and, uh, my mom refused cause I'd spent like the last seven nights with him and I threw a big tantrum and, uh, him and his entire family burnt, died that night in a fire. And, uh, I, I would have been there. So I was really depressed like right then. And then, then this happened right after it. So I was in a, I was in a pretty dark, dark spot at that point in my life for, especially for my age, you know, I was in third grade <laughs> dealing with this crazy to hear. And, when when obviously through through your life there's been many challenges for you to overcome and understand and get your head around do you do you resent your the decisions of your parents to live a nomadic and off the grid life to value things in a different way that you know not the social norm do you resent your the events or the upbringing i just want to get a sense obviously it's the choice you you are now making a different choice for your kids but um how do you feel about some of the things you had to go through? Uh, there's no resentment at all. Uh, there was a number of years I, I resented when uh, my mother had a mental breakdown, took off to Montana. And that's uh, my sister's father was um, spiraling into uh, mental illness uh, further. And he was incapable of taking care of them. So that's when I picked up custody uh, while I was going to college. And so, yeah, I... I, there was resentment for a number of years towards my mother uh, around leaving her children like that. Um, but that passed and my sisters rebuilt their relationship with her. And once they did that, I felt I felt fine. It's just it's just understanding, you know, she's a she's a different woman beats to her own drum. But there's there's things of that that I get and I understand. And parts of that are big pieces of who I am today. And. And those same lessons are actually what I'm trying to teach my children and trying to show them by having them around as I do what I do, which is literally you can create 
your own world around. You can forge your own identity and and mold the world around you to what you want, what you want out of it, how you want to live. And how she wanted to live and what she was trying to achieve was definitely not what most people would want, but that's where she is today. I mean, she wanted to create a, you know, a, a life for her off the grid that was sustainable. That was it, that she wasn't have to be interact and be part of society. And that's what she does today. Um, she lives out in the far out in the desert. She's got her mines. She works stones and ships them. She's got a little rock museum. She's big into geology. She's got a rock museum. She, you know, entertains, you know, some people that come through there that are, you know, passionate about those sorts of things that she is, but the greater world, like she is very little, you know, not living, uh, not, not living the way most people live, you know, my, uh, all her grandkids call her cowboy grandma, you know, she, she drives around on her tractor. She's got her, she's got her 44 on her hip and she's, she's just one tough little hombre. And, uh, and so, you know, that's what, that's what she was after all those years. And, uh, you know, she's found that and, you know, it's not easy. Uh, but, uh, that's, that's, that's the life that she lives. And literally I've essentially done the exact same thing. You know, um, I, uh, I entered the, the corporate executive world. Uh, well, I guess that's a little too early. Uh, you know, I, uh, I went into the, the, the corporate world, you know, doing management and stuff like that and kind of grew and then over 10 year period and then be moved into the executive world and was doing, you know, turning around divisions of companies, turning around companies, getting them sold, uh, you know, in the aerospace, uh, automotive manufacturing, uh, in commercial industrial arenas, uh, for another 10 years and, you know, highly rewarding stuff in a sense, but it just wasn't, it wasn't me. And I wasn't really able to live and be exactly who I wanted to be. And so I've created my own little space in this, in this world. I make my own rules. I do what I want. Um, and not in a, I don't know, that sounds kind of a little funny. I do what I want, but, um, it, uh, it, it really is a matter of creating my own little autonomy and separation from the normal, normal life and, and rules that a lot of people live by. I've got to be up at Monday and work, you know, you know, nine to five, you know, and put in some overtime on Saturday morning or, you know, just like, uh, I've got to request these days off. I've got, you know, it's just, you know, all that is not the life that I live and not that, how I, how I want to live. And, uh, it sounds like that you, you respect that value of your, of your mother's that, you know, that independent, not having to, you know, fall into the rat race. Um, I, I find it alluring, you know, quite often me and my wife talk about, wouldn't it be magical <laughs> if you was off the grid and you didn't have the pressures of society, you know, weighing down on you in terms of what you should be being judged, you know, fitting into, you know, the, the, the economics of the world, just being able to run a more natural, independent life. I, I know it wouldn't work for, for us, but it is alluring. And no doubt that was what your, was driving your mum. But absolutely. It's a, it's and, and, and when I talk about strength, strength and perseverance to like, 
there is so much that fought against her to doing that, right? You know, everybody judging, her family judging, society coming in and taking her children from her, uh, you know, throwing her in jail, like all, like she, she, she's lived this life her entire life as soon as she had control over her decisions. And so I, I, I admire that. Uh, there's definitely some issues with like, you know, having your, your young, your young children, you're living in the woods and you're literally lashing branches up in the trees to build bedding because there's rattlesnake dens, you know, and that's, that's, that's your, that's your home is <laughs> sleeping in the trees with young children. Like, uh, okay. I could see how people can judge that as bad, but I, at the same time, I get it. I understand it. Um, would I put, would I do that? No. Um, but, uh, the other part is, you know, just having, you know, with that level of, you know, perseverance or strength is to really, it's not just living the way you want, but the strength to, in my, in, in, for me is about adding value to the world in the way that you want to, and that you can, and just chasing that. And that's the bigger thing for me. And that's the part that wasn't for her, that I think I saw lacking with her. And then in the death of my father and stepfather was leaving any sort of recognizable mark on the world in a positive fashion. It was definitely very self and, you know, it was all about how I want to live and not how I want to positively impact the world and how I want to leave the people and the rest of it better in some fashion. And that's, I think that's what separates us and why I do what I do. Cause like I said, I, I walked away from a crazy successful and well-paid career to straight back into uncertainty, chaos and, <laughs> and lack of income as you're starting up businesses. Right. Um, which is, you know, when you're, you're at the position I was in, that's typically not what you do. <laughs> you've, you've basically had to transform and redefine your life a few times, you know, from the kind of nomadic lifestyle that you had, through to you know being in college and having to change your friends, uh, through to changing your your jobs several times and making a number of risks. What do, do you think that is? Uh, do, do you recommend drastic changes for other people, um, or do you see it as kind of callous and um, without without measure could be overly risky? Because you hear it a lot from you know entrepreneurial kind of guides and Instagram influencers oh, online, God. saying, you know, just quit your job, quit, quit college. Oh, you can make it work. Just go for it. Go for it's your utter dream. Crap. It's utter crap. They don't tell you, uh, you know, what the ramifications of that are. Honestly, most people are not cut out to run their own business, not cut out mm -hmm. to be an entrepreneur because there's huge, massive downsides. Now, uh, I, you know, it's commonly called what, uh, um, uh, not motivation porn or something like that, but like, um, uh, I, I get where they're coming from, but here's the, here's, here's the crux of the problem. Like it's only okay to push and accept like the risks and the work and the, you know, the, the grind, the hustle porn, that's what they call it. Hustle porn. Um, 
to, you know, to get into the grind and the hustle for that long and, and, and strive and push and not get anything in return for those long periods of time. If this is something that's truly aligned with yourself and for the most part, it's being sold as go make some money and live rich. And that's utter crap. That doesn't mean that that's what you want in life. You may think it's what you want, but why do you, why do you want it? And that's the bigger question. And you've got to just dive deeper on those whys. Um, you know, Simon Gennett's got a great book. Um, uh, gosh, I can't remember the, the type. It's like, finding what's your why? Your why? Yeah. Uh, finding your why. But it, it, it's great. And that's something I used actually in the, well, long before the book came out, but is the, the five whys strategy, you know, consistently diving deeper. And what people lack, and they love to find just like these goals. I want to do this. I want to make this company. I want to, I want to make this much money. I want to have a house. I want to have blah, blah, blah. Like it's all these external factors. And there's a reason that you want those things. But it's not that it's a Lamborghini. Trust me, I don't want a Lamborghini, by the way. But um, I, I throw that out there because the, the hustle porn people love to post pictures of them in front of their jet, their their uh, their private jet, and their their Lamborghini, and says, "Go after this stuff." Blah blah blah. But you need to understand what your values in life are. Like, what? How do you want to live? Who do you want to have around you? What do you want to? You asked. You started this by asking me, "What does my life look like right now?" That those are. Those are some pieces that you need to understand. Like, what do you want your life to look like? What are those pieces, right? And once you understand, like, really what you value. And for me, you know, a lot of that is, you know, that legacy of having a positive impact on the world, uh, showing my children that they can forge the world to to their own desire and their own means is like a huge thing for me. Uh, you know, being able to, you know, have those stories of people that, you know, you've re that I've redirected their life. You know, I've got, I've gotten freaking actually about a dozen messages in the last two days from people from 10 to 20 years ago, like, Hey, we had this conversation one time and I just want you to know I'm now moved to the U S and I'm a, you know, you know, you know, a lead engineer on this project. Just want to thank you as a life changing call, but you know, those are the things like, that's what I want to leave. That's how I want to impact people. I want to leave my mark in the strength training world because it's so broken or has been for so long by correcting the issues out there. Anyway, for, once you understand your values, I'm starting to get into what some of my goals are. Uh, but how, how do you go about realizing those values? So you need to understand what your values are, then establish your goals and now start working a plan. Once you've got a plan, goals and values, now you've got a vision mm. and now you can start working. Now, now it's worth the hustle and the grind. OK, but people get lost in jumping to go like you've got to have your bucket list. You've got to have, you know, like I'm like, you don't just need to put 50 goals down because somebody wrote an article and says you need 50 things in your bucket list. Like. Where's that numbers pulled out of somebody's ass? Like, that's not it. So, um, once you do that, like making big changes in your life, they're not big changes. They're just fine tuning that direction of where you want to be. And uh, I'm going to diverge a bit here from this conversation. Maybe you'll have more questions, but like, 
The book is broken into two pieces, and that's why it's called The Eagle and the Dragon. And the first half of the book is literally about, you know, creating it's it's about developing and understanding your strengths as an individual so uh really realizing what you're capable of and realizing that your environment or the things that have happened to you are not a definition of who you are and what you're capable of and that gets into a whole nother discussion because i i meet so many people that when you ask them who they are they tell you a sob story about the things that have happened to them well, now that is their definition of themselves, but it shouldn't be. You are not those things that happened to you, but your choices and actions that you made as a result of those. And that is a definition of who you are. Yeah, those things are going to affect who you are to some level, but you're, you, the definition of who you are is the, is, is the actions that you take, not what has happened to you. The second part of the book is all about the purposeful reinvention. So that is this later in life stuff that I've that I've that I've spoken spoken to and really understanding those values and really aligning your life with purpose to it. Not just overcoming obstacles and finding your strengths and what you're capable of, but now taking that and recreating and forming your life to realize realize that vision through the execution of those goals, through discipline of nailing those, you know, those steps needed to, to, to that need to happen to accomplish those goals. That makes sense, man. That makes sense. I think that was a lot to digest. I just went, ran a whole lot of different directions on you, but you know, <laughs> no, I'm with you. I'm with you. It makes perfect sense. You, you talk about something about confronting and using fear, valuing fear versus running away from it. Can you maybe kind of put some context to that for the listeners? Absolutely. So I, uh, I, I said something very early in the podcast about uh, our, our, you know, kind of our motto or motto or signature being live better through strength. And so we all know in the physical world that we adapt to stress and we grow into better, stronger versions of ourselves. Very, very simple concepts. This is strength training at its whole, right? And it's the human being at its at its at its whole in regards to anything. So, to you must be growing to living. If not, we're in the process of doing what? Well, in the strength training world, it's atrophy. It's that process of leading towards the end of life and death. So we want to be growing, adapting, and the only way to do that is to be overcoming stress. Okay to be challenging it, using it, and becoming better versions of ourselves. So the same thing, we shouldn't be seeking a life of comfort, okay? We should be seeking those challenges, seeking those things that scare us. And, and you need to stay in the practice of that because as humans, our nature is to find comfort, okay? Find that nice, comfortable, you know, and I'll use the nine to five job, you know, example, but it is finding, hey, there's a nice, easy job. I can make a great income. Uh, I'll, you know, you know, just get through every week and wait for the weekend, drink some beer and watch some watch some football on TV. You know, nothing wrong with any of those decisions. I'm just trying to like present a, you know, a scenario for you. But 
what we want to do, even in that, is always be trying to find those things that scare us. And if they do, we know that's the direction that we need to go. And if you've got a life change ahead of you and it doesn't scare you to some level, is it really worth it? And so this isn't something you, you can't just go, hey, I squatted 500 pounds 20 years ago. I'm going to walk in the gym and do it now. Like you have to stay in the practice of doing it. Because if we don't, we grow soft. Our strengths atrophy. So we have to be constantly having some challenges in that regards. To, you know, so this is how we grow stronger mentally. That's why we go to school, right? And we're bombarded with knowledge and questions and spurring us to think and challenging our process and we grow smarter. These are not simple, you know, these are very simplistic concepts, but in, in the world, we're taught to be consumers. We're taught to be consumers of information and not creators, not doing things that are challenging. We're trying to find, everything's trying to push us towards comfort, entertaining us. And that is the opposite of what you need to be doing if you want to be a stronger, better version of yourself to really go out there, make change, and, and, and leave something of value in this world. It's not going to happen if you go down that process. So, you know, if you've got a new job ahead of you, if there's not a little queasy in your stomach about it, if there's a new project at work that somebody's offering to you, and you're scared of it, so you're trying to find a way out, freaking go after it. The thought of going back to school, it's been on your mind for five, seven years, but it's like, God, that kind of scares me. How am I going to fit that into my life? Go after it. You know, you've got this attractive, uh, you know, person at another, another table at a bar. You want to go talk to them. You, you feel it in that pit of your stomach, don't you? The excitement, but also the scariness. Ah, maybe that's the person you do need to talk to. You know, fundamentally, these are all things, you know, that you need to go after. It is your compass. It's your compass to tell you where to turn, whether that is the right decision or not. Because if it doesn't stir up that, it's not, a, it's not really an emotion. It is. But you're feeling it in, in that pit of your stomach, that little twist in there. This hard conversation that you've got with a friend, an employee, a coworker, it's sitting there. You know you need to have it. They've done something or said something that's really bothering you. And it's stirring up and depending on your stomach. And what do you want to do? Avoid it. What do you need to do? Go chase it. Go have that conversation right now. Why? It's fear and it's something to be owned and overcome. And, and it's a way to stay in the practice of it. So just a couple of things off of that, Chris. Um, what that reminds me of is the, uh, the work of Brené Brown. You know, obviously, one of one of the most viewed YouTube clips of all time. Uh, her TED talk is just incredible. Um, she talks about vulnerability. She's a vulnerability researcher, but she she connects vulnerability and courage, and saying they are inexplicably linked. You cannot be courageous without being vulnerable. And what you're just talking about now is courage. Courage to get after something, knowing that you can have you're going to have you know scrapes. You're going to get knocked down. You're going to 
deal with discomfort. But here's here's the thing that kind of really resonates. Is I know I know many people in you know in my life currently or previously where their value system is focused on comfort. It's in the here and now. It's um, immediate satisfaction, whether it be with food, whether it be with Netflix, whether it be with their weekend ritual, or just being able to you know chill right? Because work, life's hard. Let's just chill when we have the opportunity. I get it. I want to slow down. I want to enjoy the fruits of my labor. But there's a big difference between, you know, comfort and telling yourself you're enjoying the comfort versus real satisfaction that your life is, has got some meaning that it's delivering some value, not just to you, but as you say, it's leaving a mark on the world, it's adding value to others. And that's where the real juice of life is, is when you can find the balance when you you know when the time's right in your life but at the same time you can reflect on how you show up as an individual and know both you're growing and you're adding value and that that requires courage and that requires you to be vulnerable which means looking at fear and getting after it i think it's such an important point chris absolutely and i'm not i'm not saying not to take that time like i'm not saying don't have a beer and watch a football game like it just as with strength training if you push it all the time and never take a break, you're going to end up having too much fatigue accumulating faster than your recovery. And they call that a state of overtraining. And we start working backwards. The same thing happens both uh, mentally and emotionally. If we're bombarded with stress nonstop and we're constantly there, we've got to have a time, but it can't be too long. It can't mm -hmm. be too frequent, right? So you've got to have those times to reset yourself. You need your vacation. You need your weekend. You need these things. So I'm not saying not that I was using that as example, uh, but you can't be constantly seeking that comfort. You need to have those challenges in your life and be working them if you want to be living and growing, at least my definition by living. No, you, you, you bang on. So tell me how, tell me how you go, you go from from reading the book, I, I um, identify it with one of your qualities. You, you talk to you, you talk about being an all-in guy. Like when you get started on a project, it has to be done there and then that day. Like you're going to throw yourself into it. You're going to make yourself sick doing it. Uh, you've got a great story about putting up some fences. Maybe you can share. But how do you go from being an all-in guy, crushing it? You know what? You know tr training seven days a week, working your nuts off, having side hustles. How do you get after it? in the way that you've just said, which is growing, adapting, um, reaching for things, but at the same time, find a way to bring balance. So you can reset, you can recover, you can spend time with your family, because they sound to be opposing uh, desires, at least in my world, that yeah. pendulum swings between intensity and chill, and which are you going to choose? How, how do yeah. you transition from being an all in guy to someone who can can find so, that balance when you want it. Yeah. So uh, right before I touch on that, though, I want to talk about the book concept as a as a whole, just in the in the fact of the, the self help portion of it, not the autobiography portion. But like, I, I don't tell you how to live your what your values are or put any morality around anything. Um, but it's all about asking you the right questions at the right time to have the introspection so you can understand what those things are for you and then giving you guidance and actionable guidance 
that you can take. So I just want to be clear on on that because there's a lot of things that a lot of books kind of similar to it that tell you these things. And that's not my goal. My goal is for you to reach deep and understand these things for yourself. So I just want to get that out there. Um, now, with what you're talking about, I, I, I see so much of what people, I, we talk, I, I mentioned the bucket list. Let's make a hundred, a hundred piece bucket list. You know, like it's all additive. People think that when you're saying do more, accomplish more, it means put more things on. And one of the most frequent questions I get answered is about how I prioritize or, uh, sorry, not prioritize, but, uh, how I manage, um, uh, my schedule to be able to, my time management to be able to, to get everything done and that I must not sleep. In fact, I sleep nine to 10 hours a day, by the way, <laughs> and I train two to three hours a day. Okay. And I take a nap every day. Well, not every day, but uh, most every day. So clearly I'm not like running to the max all the time. Right. And, and so my process and what I really see is a gap. And especially this was huge for me, like in the corporate world, cause I would be taken, I get hired to take over for somebody that wasn't doing their job. Well, they'd seek me out and find me to go fix, you know, some company or division or whatever. And I'd come in and replace somebody that's been working six, seven hours. It wasn't a lack of motivation. They were working six, seven days a week, you know, 10, 12, 14 hour days. And here I was, they hire this guy who's got an addiction to lifting, who's only going to work Monday through Friday. And every Monday and Wednesday, he's going to leave the office at four or four 30. He's not going to come in on Saturdays and Sundays. And I would turn the place around. I changed the culture, changed the environment. I changed profitability, quality, safety, everything about an organization. Okay. How I did it was seeking to do less. So it's not a matter of, of, of adding more to your plate and getting more done. It's what are you not going to do? If you know what your goals are and your values, right? You can start looking at everything in your life that doesn't align with those things and start cutting it out. And you'll be surprised at how much stuff that you have in there that doesn't align. Now, if you start chopping stuff and the more stuff you remove, all of a sudden you'll start getting amazing things accomplished. Not to brag, but this is stating fact here. I've competed at a world-class level while turning companies around for world-class performance while building custom vehicles that are one of a kind in the world. Like, and, and you know, the other things that I do having those things are the biggest for me. So this is actually how I came about determining that I, it was time to launch my own business and move forward with this final version of my life. I looked at my life and I wanted to understand, well, kids are getting older. They're going to be in sports. They're going to be needing more time. Okay. I have training. It's very important to me. So I've got family. I've got training. Okay. I've got my hobbies. They fall a little down the list here and I've got work. 
something has to give. I will not be able to do all these at that level. And I already knew from a work standpoint, I didn't have to be there 40 hours a week, but you pretty much kind of do to set an example. So I was there just to be there, you know, but my work was a lot less. I'm like, what am I going to do? Well, the only logical thing to go is I've got to quit my job because family's not going to compromise. Training's not going to compromise. And those things are ahead of that. So what's going to happen? So that's kind of an extreme example, but it's, it's that thing over and over again. I go into a work environment and it's, you know, I find these people, they're running like, you got to get this report done, you know, and get this done. And it's all this task based stuff that just over and over again. And it's almost like people are trying to make themselves feel like they're getting a lot done by doing a lot of work, running around with your hair on fire, nonstop busy, cut, pushing out fires, getting a million things knocked off your to-do list. And yet nothing of value, things that are going to really drive and change things gets done. That's, a, that's completion versus achievement, right? There's a lot of people yep. that are, are completely finishers and just love a to-do list because it, it gives them a sense of purpose during the day. I've been there. I've been a to-do list junkie and just going, if I don't get these 10 things done, even if, if, if I got one thing done and it was amazing, it was a good thing, I'd still beat myself up because I don't feel, I, don't, I didn't work eight hours. I didn't work 10 hours. I didn't work 15 hours. What, what's going on? I, I feel like a bit of a lazy fool. Yet what I'd done for the business at that moment, at that time, was worth $6 million. It's like, okay, well, that's, that's cool. I, I can rest easy now. But a lot yep. of us can't struggle with that idea of you know, taking your foot off the gas once you've achieved something versus completed whole bunch of stuff and um, yeah. it's, a, it's a hard it's a hard thing to get your head around well but that's, that's I... why you've got to understand like what those most important priorities are so like in in a few different of the turnarounds that i did it was really it had to be driven through cultural change in the organization first so i i, I my practice is just going in and not doing anything one to find out actually what tasks i have to get done because you'll find out really quick, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't need to actually get done Beautiful. that are that are that are being done. But then, like if if that's the case, I can't check anything off my my to do list by walking around and talking to people one at a time and explaining further beyond the meetings that we have what the vision is, what this is going to look like, what we need to accomplish company wide. In their, in their group of people, with them, how they fit in over and over again. I can't check anything off my list. But guess what? That sort of thing gets an entire organization aligned, okay? And gets those things happening so that a year down the road, all of a sudden, everything's cranking and moving and happening effortlessly. So, and, but it, it sure feels like crazy when you first start doing stuff like that. Cause you're like, I'm coming into this failing organization and I'm just walking around having conversations and like sharing information and, you know, like, uh, you know, obviously there's planning cause I, you know, to have a vision, you've got to have some plans that you put together and you're showing like, 
how everything fits together and what the strategy is. And, but it's an individual of like getting every person to understand that they, they are part of the solution. And this is how they fit into that. I can't check a damn thing off my list. I talked to Harry today, like, <laughs> you know, but, but at the end Simple of the day, stuff. you can, so, and that's why I said, you gotta, you gotta step back and really prioritize it, Once you know what the, what the highest values are, start know what is aligned with getting that stuff done. Now you can start chopping those things off that aren't, you get those off there. Like I said, and the things that you want to get done will just start. People are constantly amazed about the amount of things that I, that, that I accomplish, you know, um, a year ago I said I was also going to be a best-selling author. Well, I'm a best-selling author now, uh, along with all the other things like, it's a lot of stuff that just continues to happen, but I'm really focused on those single things. And, mm -hmm. and I have to hire people. I have to outsource. I have to, you know, and actually here's a, uh, uh, my, my kind of process for when it comes to cutting. So first thing is just don't do it. Okay. And see what happens. Now you're going to find out really quickly. The laundry has to get done. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, well, someone else has to do but it. You'll, it, but you'll find out there's a lot of things that don't have to get done. Uh, you know, but laundry's got to get done. Okay. Uh, now from there, the next thing is, well, if I can't do that, then how do I automate it? Okay. How can I make this task so that no one has to do it and set up a process that it just gets done. Okay. And if I can't automate it, then I delegate it. So that's a three step process. Okay. Beautiful. I like it. It's I like nice it. and easy. Don't fucking do it. Number one. Okay. I can't, I, it's gotta get done Two. How do I automate it? Okay. Well, I'm going to install a laundry chute that's going to save me from walking down three flights of steps and, you know, whatever. Okay. Well, it's still got to be put in the laundry. All right. Well, I've got some, you know, next step is delegate it, you know. So there's – it's simple. Oh, um, I know. Mind-blowing. <laughs> Do you know what? It, it is ob obvious to anyone listening, yet I don't think day-to-day -day many of us do that, right? You know, we, we collate – actions you know things come in right okay let's stick that on the list stick that on the list there's this little you know distraction that came in my life it'd be interesting if i googled it for half an hour stick it on my list to do it some point tonight some point tomorrow all of a sudden i've got 50 different things that i might be staring at now now i have to prioritize across 50 things and that feels hard because you never feel satisfied what you're saying is purposely instead of adding choose choose your highest level goals align the actions to those goals and then just keep chopping stuff out. And I love that. I think that's quite Prioritize the other, go the other direction, focus on what you can remove. Beautiful. So, Beautiful. Yeah. Listen, I would love to transition for the final part of our discussion on your training, because anyone listening would, you know, kick me to uh, kick me if they know that we have this conversation. I don't speak a little bit about some of your, <laughs> your feats of strength. So I, I looked, I read through the book, obviously, there was a few pages of, of, of the things that you've achieved. One of the things that really stood out to me, uh, bar the world record, 
thousand pound deadlift was a story you told about deadlifting with a tweaked back and how in that moment you learned how to deadlift proper can you tell us that story yeah so uh god this was a long t- uh this is like 10 years ago at least no it was a little over a decade ago but uh i uh I tweaked my back like three weeks before a meet that I had and, you know, so bad that, you know, it was one of those trying to get out of bed in the morning, you know, I'd have to roll off the bed and then stand up because I couldn't like just get out of bed, you know, and, uh, start getting, doing a little rehab, getting a little better. Um, and I, I show up at the meet. Well, I show up. I was running the meet. I was the meet director, put it on, uh, hauled all the equipment there myself anyway. Uh, cause that's what I do. <laughs> and, uh, so I, uh, I squat and back holds up pretty good. Um, uh, move on to bench and just that, uh, extra little arch you go for when you're doing a competition bench caused my back to tighten up a little bit. Wasn't really in pain yet, but I, I walked over to deadlift and I'd been chasing this 700 pound deadlift meat deadlift for a long time, like a few years. Like I'd try 710, 715, not get it. I stuck it like my last pull, 690, 695. It's just right freaking there. Just never happened. And I'm like, I, I really wanted to break it this meet. And uh, I felt really primed to. I was going to get an over 700-pound deadlift. So I was opening at like 650 pounds on the deadlift. That was what I was my first my first first run. That'd give me two attempts at at 700. You get three attempts in a powerlifting meet. And, uh, so my last warm up is like 550 pounds or 585, probably six plates. And, uh, I'm in the warm up room and I can't pull it. And, you know, I'm, everybody knows who I am. I'm still, a, I'm a pretty, still, I'm a, a, a you know, a, a well-known lifter in the, uh, the local arena at the time. And they're like, what are you going to do? And I'm like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like, you got to go up there and change your opener. Nah. Like, no. I think I just need to be a little more patient. Just wait. Get my spine just perfect and locked in and everything there. I think I can hold 50 pounds. And I start setting up the bar. And you can feel all the tension, you know. And it just tells you it's time you want to pull. And I'm like, no, I can't yet. Just not quite there. And I, I push my knees out just a little bit further and drive my hips in just a little bit, you know, deeper to that bar and just work on just uprighting that torso just a hair bit more and cranking those lats on just a little bit more to get everything in. And finally, I'm just like, just about where I feel like I'm going to fall over backwards. It's just so much tension. It's just incredible that I haven't started the pull yet. And I pull it. No pain. Just moves beautifully. So 650. All right. Throw 700 on. Same process. I pull 700. So I put 750 on for my third attempt. Pull 750. Wow. Well, at a, uh, I have attempts for going for a fourth attempt. So they allow a fourth attempt if you're going for a record. Friend of mine from another state walks up. He's like, I'm like, what should I put on the bar? He's like, you know what you want. And I'm like, what? 
He's like, you know what you want. And I'm like, yeah, I do. I want an 800 pound pole. So I load the bar to 801. It was 198 pounds at the time. And I just wait for it. Just perp. So much, so much tension. It's just telling me to want to pull, but I can't. Just got to wait until everything is just perfect. Patience. Position hits. I know it. All of a sudden, everything's just locked in. Every joint is stacked. And I pull 801 pounds. So I never had a first 700-pound like meat plus PR. My first, I went from the sixes to an 800-pound in one meet. That's incredible. That's incredible. I know it's really indif- really difficult to um, try and describe a, a technique over the mics. I'm not expecting you to, but what you speak about this kind of process of waiting to be ready. Um, when I, when I deadlift, you know, I, I get anxious when it gets really heavy and I, I start trying to, you know, build myself up and start getting a little bit animated, a bit aggressive. And then, you, you know, then the idea is you get to the bar, you might stick on the straps. And at that point, I feel like the energy's come being taken away from me as I'm strapping up, like I'm losing my mojo. <laughs> and then you mm-hmm. feel like, okay, I've lost a bit of my tension. I'm strapped to this bar. My head's not in it now lift and it can be an absolute grind yet you're talking about a process of just being one with the bar for a while and somehow finding your space mentally and physically and getting everything all stacked up and tight but that's not you know you you see a lot of people that just kind of you know grab and grab and lift how how do you manage that energy and how do you kind of what's the process mentally that's not getting you falling you out of the zone when you're taking all that time to prep uh, there's definitely a, a window, right? And a lot of people, they take this big ball of energy and they expand it everywhere outwards, like as they're getting ready to lift. And you really want to just keep that bundled up tight in your core and ready for that last moment. And I'm not talking like muscle tension. I'm just talking about that same thing, like people like rah rah, getting all this, and by the again, by the time that you get to the bar, mm, you're losing it. That fire's gone. And uh, I had an interesting discussion. I think it was on a podcast with a friend of mine. He's uh, named Chael Sonnen, and he's one of the top MMA guys in the world, um, or was, um, is. We'll say that. Otherwise, he hears this and he'll be mad at me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and. Uh, He's like, you know, just watch your, and he's not a, he's not a power lifter, but like his observation, because again, that's another like very mental sport. Right. And he's like, when you go to deadlift, he's like, it's not until your second foot hits the ground and you will just see your intensity turn on. So I've got my straps on the bar. I've got my first foot, which is my left foot sitting in position and I'll swing my right foot in. And as soon as it hits the ground, and I've gone back and watched the videos, and I know what he's talking about now, you'll just see like this fire, this personality, whatever it is, like just switch on. And that's right as I'm, for me, there's a massive amount of tension that's got to be done on the setup. The setup's actually harder than the lift. And I just put all that into right then at that moment, boom. But it's just like clockwork every single time. And it's the latest moment possible. And it's just like cued right as I drop that foot into place, that right foot goes into place and you'll see that change in me. 
I've seen your thousand pound deadlift and I saw, I could visualize the process you're describing. I mean, you start on your knees, right? And that's not, yep. that's not that common. Uh, and you're taking your time and you're rocking back and forward. I've seen Eddie Hall do his, you know, massive lift as well. And he's taking his time. He's, you know, moving up and down. And there's a lot of things I'm thinking about at that time. So I'm starting to, I'm starting the channeling process. So, you know, I have a certain set of verbiage that I, that I talk to myself and it changes a little bit with time. Okay. And I'm not going to tell, it doesn't, I'm not going to tell people what it is because it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's your own. Um, but you know, earlier in this podcast, I said something about having the right methods, the right equipment and the right mental attitude. Okay. So you've got to put your game day face on. You've got to, at the end of the day, take a step back. Like too many lifters take themselves way too seriously. We just lift weights. Like seriously, you're not going to war. You're not like, you'll see this on people's social media channel. Oh my God, I'm in the, in the grind, in the battle, going to war. I'm like, geez, we're just lifting weights, people. <laughs> uh, but in that moment, you need to become somebody different. This needs to become something bigger if you're going to be able to pull off those big things. You need to believe in yourself or in something else um, to give you this, 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 this power to be able to do this thing that you're not normally capable of. This isn't an everyday walking over, picking up the grocery bags things. You want to be able to pull from a greater force or greater force within your mind to tap into that neurology, those things to happen. Okay. And if you do that, I, I believe that you can, you know, cue and get, you know, some of that adrenal release and some of the hormonal things that happen. Um, and, um, you know, you talk to the right scientist and they'll tell you that this is indeed the case, right? Um, that you can cue, you know, and it, this release could be thousands of different chemical reactions happening in your body. I'm the wrong person to tell you you know, this sort of data, but, um, uh, so take, take that for a grain of salt, but, uh, you know, you can make this stuff happen. And if you don't believe that, you know, it's still that mental aspect of, of that. So it's, it's a channeling process. It's more of like a meditative process for me. And it, it starts, I start that in that process. The intensity isn't there yet, but I'll start feeling the hairs on the back of my neck, start standing on edge, and the skin tighten up. And at that point, I know it's time. Have you had now any hip, hypnosis or kind of psychotherapy yet? Have, has anyone worked on your mind to prepare you when, when you lifted 800? And okay, you, you've decided at some point thereafter that you are going to pursue a thousand pound uh, world record deadlift for a 220 pound guy. Did you need to? Obviously, there was incredible preparation and work uh, I was, I was, in the gym. I was but did he have? I was two sixty-two when I pulled the thousand, not two twenty. So. Oh, okay, okay. Sorry, <laughs> sorry. So then, yeah. Did you have any mental support? Any kind of uh, mental professional support to kind of get you geared up? Because I'm guessing. Tell me if I'm wrong. As much as this is, you know, grinding and practicing in the gym, big part of that jump has got to be you know, mental commitment and being able to find that you know, put a car off your kid type energy. Absolutely. And so it takes practice to get there. And this isn't something I don't know. I, I don't know how to, how, how to get there for people, but literally I can go from struggling to move an 800 pound movement. And if I get in the right zone, I can walk over and triple 900 pounds. 
That's how significant it is. Okay. Um, it's it, so much can happen on that neurological aspect by cueing this stuff. And, uh, so specifically for sport, no, my dad was a Buddhist. Uh, he spent, uh, I think, uh, over a year in the monasteries deep in Tibet, um, you know, uh, at one point and any time I spent with him growing up, we would, um, you know, go and meditate or have guided meditation, um, with his, you know, spiritual gurus, leaders, whatever, whatever they're called. And, uh, so that was, a uh, a part of my upbringing. And I think it definitely influenced that. Um, uh, my, uh, my business partner, my training partner, uh, has a doctorate degree in, uh, uh, well, actually I don't even know what it's called, but it's basically around, uh, the kinesiology, uh, as it relates to the, the mind, <laughs> uh, is where his PhD is. Um, so we've talked about some of this stuff as well, and it really just comes down to the power of visualization a lot of times as well. Um, so for me though, I, I draw a lot on just what's worked for me in practice through the years. You know, I've been doing this for 30 years and just kind of refining those techniques so that I can cue that on practice. If I do it all the time, like when I do these everyday challenges, it gets harder uh, because it, if you do it all the time, you deplete, you basically deplete your ability to do it. Yeah. So it's not something that you can sit there and just drop over and over and over again. I, I heard so, Ed, Eddie Hall talking about his um, his lift. Um, was it five hundred and something odd kilograms? Yep, five hundred kilos. Yep, um, uh, eleven hundred and two pounds. That's incredible. And he he speaks about um, being hypnotized or or going through some some process of creating this really dark, horrifying. Um, he didn't describe what it was, but he said it, it created a scenario worse than, you know, trying to pick a car off of, of your kid, some dark place. And he knew mm -hmm. he could only use it once. So he couldn't use it in practice. He couldn't, you know, go through that ritual every time he was in the gym. He had to use it on this one occasion at the point in which he was going to try and set that world record. And God, that's just a, a, a different level of lifting, <laughs> something I can't even fathom. Um, and, and, and is that what you're talking about, that, you know, having to find some kind of verbal cue in mental cue in that yep. you have to that can bring, reserve that, that to the can, big time that can bring you to that space. And it really is like a hypnotic trance, like coming out of it is a little weird. Um, but that's like, I'm not, I'm not there when it, ha I don't know how to describe it. And Amazing. it's, and anybody, anybody that's around me when I lift or hang out, like after, after I do one of these can tell you, <laughs> can probably describe how I, how I, how I react and stuff. It's, uh, I'm not quite, yeah, I'm I'm definitely in another place. We'll put it that way. Uh, it's it's just incredible to see, man. I, I have I have one more question about this whole deadlift. Uh, sorry, that whole powerlifting space, which I found fascinating in the book, uh, and I think others would like to listen to it because we all like to lose a bit of weight. <laughs> you talk <laughs> about making weight, and I know it's very different of you know making weight in a performance sport uh, versus losing fat and you know changing your physique, sculpting your physique. But you have spoken about losing 15, 20, 25 pounds. In one case, losing 39 pounds in one day. And I just don't understand. I just don't understand it. I don't know how that's even possible. And I know you don't necessarily want to 
you know, kind of um, support the idea of it because it's unhealthy. But can you give me a sense? Can you let me into that world of making weight and what what these guys do generally to lose that kind of weight in one day? Yeah, uh, well, most people don't lose that kind of weight. We'll put it. I, I just kept letting mine drift up and up and up through the years. Um, but uh, doing a 20 to 30 pound weight cut in one day is 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 pretty challenging. Um, but yeah, I've lost around 40 pounds in one day on a couple occasions, 35, it just kept drifting up and, um, it, it takes weeks of preparation. Um, so there's a lot of, uh, sodium and water manipulation going into this, uh, use of the, you know, right, rice, you know, rice supplements to, you know, stimulate that process. I actually kick off the process with a couple Coors lights. Uh, so there's a, I have a whole notes file to myself of like specific timing of, all right, here I have some dandelion root, here I have some alcohol, here I have an, and it's by the day for, for a three week period uh, leading into it as far as here's the water intake I have, the amount of sodium mixed with the water at each of those, uh, you know, instances all day long and it ramps and then it, there's a, there's a whole process to it. Uh, and then, uh, so with that, essentially without doing any work, I can drop 20 pounds in a day. And again, it's all water. So you're not making any composition changes to the body. So you must um, be making some, I guess, but, uh, no, 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 no. It's just, you're just dropping water. I mean, that's all you can do in one day. So, so you there's, lose, how do you have 40 pounds of water to lose and still, what do you mean? You're all, normal. You, <laughs> Well, you don't like, uh, so in the book, I think I, I, I got a picture of me in there the day after or the, the morning of one of the weigh-ins. Like, so one of the times I lost 40 pounds, like I went home one day to cut weight, left the office cause it was a local meet here. My business partner was the meet director and I show up the next morning, walk in, we have a shared office. I walk into his office and he looks at me and he, he says, weigh-ins are in a half an hour. You can wait out there. Cause he didn't recognize me <laughs> This is the person I work in the same office with every day. Right. <laughs> didn't recognize me from one day to the next. Cause I look like a completely different person. Your face has changed everything. It's kind of scary. Well, it is scary. It's a, th there's a high risk of death, which is I, why I don't detail how you do this. Um, and you need to have medical profession professionals on hand, uh, in case things go wrong. Um, and definitely with that type of weight cut, I'm using, uh, IV fluids to recover with, uh, because after the weigh-in, I've got to put all that weight back on. Um, and, uh, I can do it just by eating and fluids, but it doesn't get into the muscle bellies, uh, as well. And so I found that I had balance issues anytime I go lose over 20 pounds without the use of IV fluids. Um, so you'll unrack the squat and then all of a sudden you're like, where in space am I? I feel like just falling over backwards. Uh, not a good feeling when you got 800 plus pounds no. on your back. So, uh, but it's, it's incredibly taxing and it's life, right? It's life threatening. Yeah. So there's, um, so it's a mixture of what works best for people. There's, you know, hot, hot baths with, with hot salt baths, uh, sauna work. Um, and, uh, so yeah, usually I'm not sleeping cause you're just all night long 
I'll lose the first 20 and then the next 20 is all work just in and out of the sauna, wearing a sauna suit, um, and just sucking that water out. Now you've prepped the body to, to be dispersing. You've fooled it into thinking that it needs to be dumping water, uh, at this point with the weeks of preparation that you've done. Uh, so it comes easier than it normally would. Otherwise it just wouldn't happen. You can't just say, I'm going to go walk in and, and lose that much weight one day. Um, but yeah, I mean, it is severely life threatening. Yeah. You ha can have kidney failure, uh, is probably the highest, uh, uh, but you can go into cardiac arrest due to electrolyte issues. Um, so like that one in the book I described in Australia, I, uh, I lost my hearing at one point. Um, my, my, my thinking was definitely not very, uh, <laughs> coherent, but my speech was nearly incoherent as well, or unable to speak at times I had to be, uh, carried from the sauna to the car to get to weigh-ins cause I was unable to walk. Uh, so it's, uh, that's why I don't detail how to do it. So <laughs> it was really stupid of me basically to, to, to do that. So, um, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit of a spiritual person in nature, I guess. So like when I started losing 15 or 20 pounds, I had this like incredibly demanding corporate career, right? That it's never shuts off. You're always still thinking or moving, working, you know, and that was kind of like going on a walkabout, I guess, or a vision quest or whatever, whatever verbiage you want to use. And when I was done with like losing 20 pounds, you know, the work that I had to put in and, and, uh, just like that whole process just like cleared my mind. There was no work. There was no nothing. There was like, okay, it's time to recomp and go compete. And I had nothing else on my mind. And usually I had some sort of like life epiphany that's, you know, uh, helped me direct and kind of refocus my life. And so I actually really enjoyed the process, but then the next time, you know, I was a little bit bigger and I was 22 pounds. Well, that's 25 pounds. Shit, it's 27 <laughs> pounds. Well, it's only 25 pounds last time. You can do it. Fuck, it's 32 pounds. Well, you know, it was 27 last time. Let's see if you can do it. It's only five more pounds. It's 35 pounds. <laughs> and, and so over the years, it just kept uh, going and, uh, to the point of just being stupid. And it honestly ended up, that's one of my biggest regrets in my powerlifting career is I never really realized what my full potential was because of that. And since that time, I've just let my body kind of do what it's going to do. And I typically, so that was all to stay in the 220 pound class. Uh, and I typically float between like 260 and 275, uh, right now. And I'm honestly significantly stronger than I was during my, my, my competitive days. So, um, but, uh, I, just chasing that weight class and that weight class goal, yeah. um, I think really hampered my, my, my performance. I wish I hadn't done it. You've just let us into, uh, into the freaky world of powerlifting, not just mm -hmm. the, the, the sheer strength of, of your muscles and your ability to call upon your body, but then to do things like this, it's just, it, it doesn't make sense to most people. Thank you for sharing that, Chris. I've got one last question and it's, it's training morphing in to your business and your legacy. So, um, I did actually ask around for, uh, if anyone had any questions, I got one question in particular and it's, um, very relevant to your line of work. So 
you've in, but you've been injured quite a bit. Uh, you've torn a few things. Uh, you put yourself out out of whack. Um, talk to me uh, maybe about some of those injuries and the lessons you've learned as you've got older in being injury free or managing the risk of injury. And then maybe we can just kind of morph that naturally into concluding with why uh, pain management and relief from pain is an important part of your life. And as such, why Kabuki Strength has a big emphasis on rehab and um, pain relief. Mm -hmm. So yeah, uh, you know, I always hope that people can differentiate you know, what I do and what we teach to some level. Um, yeah, I've got a, I've been lifting for 30 years, so I can't go back and correct what I did 20 years ago when the information that we have today is not available. Um, and, uh, but still at the same time, you know, I'm, I'm trying to discover the limits of what the human body and human mind are capable of and what I'm doing, I don't recommend to 99.999% of the population. Right. Um, and the other is when I put myself in those situations, I'm actually exploring what we do from a rehab and preventative standpoint to manage that, like being able to squat 800 pounds every day. I say it's impossible because you, you have to know, you have to have that sort of methodology nailed to a T to be able to pull that off every single day. Like you can't have one fault or deviation start creeping up or you're going to get destroyed. Right. So it's also demonstrating, um, you know, what we do and how, uh, you know, how that, how that work comes into play. That's why I like doing some of those just crazy feats. Cause it's, it's, it takes a lot of, you know, mental capacity of knowing this stuff and being able to administer it to be able to pull that off, not just being strong. Um, the, uh, you know, the thousand pound deadlift cycle, I had no injuries over the course of that. Um, really had a great daily assessment protocol uh, because with the training I was doing, like, again, if one thing went wrong, it's going to compile so fast, you'll never be able to recover from it. Um, but yeah, I, I've had a number of injuries through time and they, a lot of, most of those were all earlier in my, in my career and kind of ended up developing, uh, towards the, you know, leading me towards the path of finding and developing the methodology that we have today. And that's why I'm so passionate about sharing it because this is what I believe is been wrong with the strength training community for a long time. One is just that whole mentality of you got to push through pain. Well, there's pushing through soreness, fatigue, mental plateaus, things of that nature. But pain is your body telling you something that it's wrong, that something's wrong. And you need to listen to that signal and figure out what it is. Oftentimes it's not the what's actually hurting you that is the, the main driver. Um, so we have a very extensive system for one, how we look at and assess movement, um, during an actual lift, as well as how we incorporate and use all the different modalities or, 
uh, incorporate the right people. So particularly like if we're dealing with sports teams and you've got your staff on hand is how all these interact and work together and what roles, uh, you know, the strength trainer, the athletic trainer, the therapist all play and when they come in and how they interact. Um, so that's, I mean, that is, that, that is what we do. And, and really there's no way. That's why I said, I'm stronger now than I've ever been. I'm 42 years old. Like I've been at this 30 years. I've got significant injuries from earlier in my career. How is that the, how is that the case? Well, it's the case because of the things that we do, um, teaching proper movement principles and how to manage, how to manage, you know, those pain signals. Um, and really drive an effective uh, rehabilitation process or prehabilitation process uh, so that we're not there. Now, uh, a lot of people, uh, God, there's so many, we could spend hours and hours and hours on this discussion. So I'm just trying to figure out what, uh, what key points I want to make. But maybe, Chris, um, just to direct it, um, if, we, if we focus on, um, what you would guide the the average Joe, someone who's not looking to do what you've done or set world records, but is getting older, is is just trying to stay functional, and they're getting aches and pains, you know, backs and shoulders and you know, um, elbows, etc. And they want to get in the gym and they want to lift and they just don't want to be riddled with things that are slowing them down or stopping them from performing. How do you how do you take someone who's forty forty five and you know? impart wisdom to them so the next 20 years is more functional and with less pain? So, um, well, one, I'd encourage people to check out all the free content that we put out because uh, this is a very, very nuanced discussion. And uh, so we put out a ton on our social media, YouTube, Instagram platforms. We've got a purpose-built uh, website that's all indexed. Uh, that allows you to, uh, to to find things and dives a little bit deeper into our philosophy. We've got six days of seminar courses that cover this uh, concepts uh, more in depth than actually put to, put it together in a system. So Kabuki Strength Kabuki dot Education uh, is a great great resource for people to go check out um, and then check out our social media channels. Now, a couple key points is just like people forget that. Cur- Moving correctly, you know, like squatting well, is a corrective. It doesn't require us to balance. I did so much squatting, now I have to do so much strength training to balance that out. Those are are things that it it just doesn't make sense. Um, Squatting doesn't make your hips tighten up squatting like shit makes your hips tighten up. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, uh, if you're losing mobility, it means you're doing something wrong. If you're in pain, it means you're doing something wrong. So it could be one of two things, either not moving correctly or loading inappropriately. You, we don't want to, there's both, uh, and this is uh, referencing Tim Gavitt's work out of Australia, but, um, we don't want to see spikes of more than 10 to 15% in our average, and it's actually uh, 
uh, a called chronic training load, but average, I think is a better descriptor, like whatever type of training I've been averaging for the last four to six weeks, I don't want to see a spike over 10 to 15% of that on a weekly basis. I do want to continue to try to drive that up, but no more than that. If I do, we're going to put ourselves uh, at risk for, for uh, an injury. And the second is, like I said, just moving incorrectly. And so understanding the principles of movement, how to, how to manage um, our priorities start with what's going to have the biggest global impact. So the biggest global impact is spinal uh, position and stabilization. So to achieve that, you've got to understand proper breathing techniques, diaphragmatic breathing, uh, the use of the diaphragm, and then how to use the diaphragm to create intra-abdominal pressurization. If you think flexing your abs hard is doing it, you're flat wrong. Okay. Um, so that's going to have the biggest global impact. And then the next, we're going to move into foot mechanics. Again, biggest global impact. And then finally, we're going to look at how you're using your power generators, which would be either the hip complex or shoulder complex and generating and then transferring the power through, uh, through the system. So, um, if you're having to sit there and do foam rolling and mobilizations for more than 10 minutes, nine minutes in your warm up, you're doing something wrong with your training. Okay. So that stuff is not doing any sort of long-term, it's not adding any sort of stress that's going to give you any sort of adaptation. Training is. So if I can't get a joint in position, I may need to do that as triage work so I can get that training done for the day. But the body's not going to adapt and those gains that you made by mobilizing are going to be short term until you ingrain it by loading and using it uh, in, a, in a safe manner with proper movement. So again, it all goes back to movement. But understanding how to use those philosophies, because I see so many people that get confused and they think, oh, well, I've done 40 minutes of strength training, I do 40 minutes of stretching, or uh, they sit there and roll around on the mats with no level of intensity, no purpose behind what they're doing for an hour before they go to train. You're wasting your time, or you don't know what, or you've got too many problems, you're focused on too many different things, or you just don't know what's wrong or how to fix it. Maybe you need to seek a professional to help you get some guidance. Okay. Pick the top things that are an issue, two to three, and with purpose and intent, work on correcting those or getting those fixed in that nine, 10 minutes before you train. Now go train. If you want to do more stuff just because you enjoy it on your off days, go ahead and do that as well. But don't forget, adaptive response. That means stress. That means load. Training with load is going to be what gives you long-term gains. Okay. So a lot of, lot of concepts. A lot of concepts we've covered there, um, but uh, you know that's 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 some of the bigger points in a in a nutshell. Managing your training loads, moving well, and then diving deep, not into pain. Uh, you know, fixing things one thing at a time. Um, yeah, you had a question. Oh yeah, I was just going to say, if someone's got golfer's elbow, for example, and it's probably because they've been moving incorrectly, or they put some additional stress, you know, shock stress in on the joint at one point, but something's going wrong, either in the shoulder or the elbow, causing 
causing golfer's elbow and it's hurting it's hurting when they you know do pressing movements or kind of tricep movements would you say you know do some corrective work uh, maybe seek a professional but hey you should be able to train you might just have to adapt a couple of your exercises to to support what you can do pain-free or or if you've got something like that do you do what is advised when you go to your physician which is rest for six weeks no. So uh, resting for six weeks is uh, accused the atrophy process. We don't have things happening on a hormonal or a cellular level to stimulate the recovery process and is one of the worst things that you can do. So movement is a healer. So um, wherever possible, we want to fix the issue in the movement itself. Um, and oftentimes we can, but that would take uh, an assessment of that particular person uh, and looking at our cueing strategies to try to cue uh, things to happen uh, from a neurological aspect. The next step from there is how can we fix it with movement? So that'd be going into some sort of corrective strategy. Again, a corrective is mostly going to give you proprioceptive awareness. If you're a strength athlete, you know, doing some simple body weight drills is not going to give you any sort of adaptive stress, but it can help carry over or it may allow you to do something more frequently because you don't have load uh, load associated with it mm -hmm. um, that you might only be able to do once or twice a week if we're doing load. The third would be if we none of those strategies work, then we're going to go into actually doing some sort of soft tissue work. Now with golfer's elbow, go, elbow is an output joint. Problem is probably not the elbow itself unless there was some sort of trauma. The elbow was hit uh, or something of that nature. So again, in those movements, we would want to make sure that they've got a good understanding of breathing, embracing, and spinal mechanics first. Okay, they've got that. Do we have good rooting to the floor? Okay, they've got that. Now we're going to look at that shoulder joint uh, once we've checked off those other two boxes um, and then look at stabilization of the shoulder and how that's, uh, how that's working and then the joints downstream being stacked between that and in the, in the, in, in the implement. So... Yeah, that's really quick. The process I would run through on that. Yeah, thank thank you for sharing that. I think that's it's it's common as you age, you, you get aches and pains. If you're in the gym, it you're going to hurt yourself. And then for yourself, how do you, how do you train? Well, yeah, modify your training. So take things out that are going to aggravate it. We're not going to push through pain uh, to make that. Well, well, I just need to stay training, so I'm going to keep doing bench press, even though it's excruciating pain. Well. Let's find some other movements that are training those areas so I can still maintain that while I work on trying to resolve this issue. Okay. I can train the shoulders and the pecs without having elbow extension or flexion uh, with some other movements. Okay. Let's do that. Okay. Maybe I can handle a little bit of extension and flexion at the elbow. Okay. We can add that back in as we're making progress. So, um, again, uh, that's that's the process that we want to take. I love it. I love, I love the fact you said then don't just stop training for six weeks because no one wants to hear it. You know, if you do go to a physician and say, yeah, just chill for a while. No one who's in their, in their groove, who's working out, who's changing their body wants to stop for six weeks. It doesn't feel right. It, well, and, it, and it, it's, it, it, and it's not, and it's, and it's not right. And so, yeah. you know, we, we speak at, you know, the society for weightlifting injury prevention and sports, physical therapy colleges, chiropractic colleges, uh, work with professional and collegiate teams on these concepts, training their staff. Um, this isn't, you know, some random powerlifter telling you stuff. So, uh, well, I know this. <laughs> I know this. <laughs> Great, well, Chris. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you for being open and honest and sharing. You know, so many, so many 
pearls of wisdom that I think people can take from a mental aptitude perspective, from a training perspective, from a rehab perspective. It's truly been gold. Um, I want to give you just the, you know, the mic for a moment more just to, you know, close on, um, maybe just explaining what people can expect from Kabuki. So we've spoken about, you know, the the educational part, which sounds like there's just tons of stuff there. Um, I know you make special specialty bars and things like that. Maybe you can just give a moment explaining what Kabuki Strength is so people know where it is and how to engage with those services and then where else people can find you if they're just curious as to how you run your life and want to get some more wisdom from you. Yeah. So, yeah, we're uh, Kabuki Strength is a coaching and education company and we kind of covered uh, that already. If people need, uh, we do remote assessments as well so people can sign up for a strategy a call with us. We may take uh, uh, videos of your movement, develop uh, movement plans, or manage coaching in its in entirety. Uh, we've got an incredibly scientific approach uh, to managing uh, intensity and loading variables. Everything's 100% customized for every individual based on their goals and what they've got to work with, training history, so on. Uh, uh, Equipment-wise, so a lot. Of, we've just been stuck working with what's been out there for a long time. Let's talk about el that elbow issue uh, this person has. Well, it could be aggravated by the squat because there's so much uh, issues with uh, external rotational demands on the shoulder uh, while getting under a squat bar, okay? In addition to that, it might drive back into the shoulder because the bicep tendon insertion of the shoulder really gets aggravated from that position as well. Ah, oh, the scap doesn't work as well. And the lats aren't in the position to be as engaged as they can be, which could allow us not to brace the torso, stabilize the torso as well, increasing risk for lumbar disc issues, all because we just use a straight barbell. So in any of the movements, uh, we make specialty bars built on improving those biomechanical positions to optimize uh, our ability to lift so that we reduce injury risk potential, improve movement patterns, Okay. And so we have a ton of industry first. Uh, one of those is like the transformer bar. It's the only bar in the world, uh, patent depending on it, um, that allows us to manipulate the spinal position and the loading about the hip joint. We can accomplish so much. We can get lifters that have, uh, again, this is why it's really big in the uh, professional sports world different limb and torso links and all this stuff. So we can accommodate to the lifter. We can accommodate to training goals. Uh, we can accommodate to movement deficits, mobility restrictions. So this is the, like the cornerstone of what Kabuki is, is building things that accommodate to those differences and improve biomechanical positions for what we do. So transformer bar, duffalo bar, our new benching bar that basically doesn't allow you to get the shoulder into a, uh, 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 into a compromised position during lifting and eliciting a greater training effect. Our new open trap bar, uh, which is the, amazing, only, the way. only balanced open trap bar in the world, eliminates poor position while loading and unloading plates because it's got a self uh, feature for that, allows for more athletic positions um, that people would be doing in those markets with single leg work carries, rear leg elevated split squatches, lunges, all those sorts mm -hmm. of things. So anyway, it's, I could go on and on. Uh, we make a very specialized product suite and it is, but it, it delivers and it's like nothing else out there. And it's built around, it comes from our principles 
around movement and, and loading. So it's uh, really an output of our education and what we see is a gap in the industry. We don't go, oh, people make these things and they sell well, let's make one too. Our, st- our process is to determine what we believe needs to be had based on our principles and bring that to market. And it's usually new and requires education because people aren't aware of uh, uh, that there was a need for it until we introduce it and they go, oh, oh that takes care of that issue. Yes, yes, it does. <laughs> I mean, you've got like a curved bar, for example, which looks yep. quite weird to look at, but I can imagine that being great for benching, probably good for squatting as well, where you just get slightly better kind of shoulder mechanics. I just I, I just wish it that they were available in the UK. Uh, hopefully, you're going to say they are, or you can get them over to here. So right now, a couple of our things from our instrument-assisted soft tissue line uh, and the Shoulder Rock, which is our shoulder health uh, tool, uh, that founded the business are available in the UK. Now you order them through us and, but it doesn't charge you the, they'll ship from a manufacturer in the UK. Got it. Um, and then we'll be adding more to that product line. We do ship to the UK, uh, quite regularly, all of our products. Oh. Uh, but it, uh, it just requires, uh, extra shipping costs and VAT and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So it gets a, it, it adds up a little bit. Uh, but that's why we've got the UK manufacturer. And it's just a slow process of getting them qualified on each of the new additional products as they uh, as they come come out. Uh, but yeah, the Duffalo bar is an all around training bar, so it uh, takes care of all those shoulder stresses and elbow stresses that I just talked about during any squat variation. It's amazing for front squats as well. Uh, and then pressing, there's a deviation at the wrist, so that ulnar deviation actually seats uh, the the shoulder in a centrated position, um, so that we're not fighting. Uh, the bar mm. that's trying to push us into internal rotation, which is where basically all of our injury uh, potentiation comes from during pressing movements and why pressing gets a bad rap. And I need and some of these us- bars. I need some of them, Chris. <laughs> you do. <laughs> <laughs> they look amazing. I, I actually first heard of you and I heard of all your work through speaking with Christian Fibordo. He said, look, you've got to speak to Chris. He's a, he's amazing. He's got great stories and his bars. He said, I've got all of them. He, 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 I think he wants to have like 20 bars by the end of the year or something. I think he's buying most of them <laughs> from you. It's brilliant. Uh, I'm very yep. jealous. Well, we'll see if we can hook you up with some, Steve. Cool. So. Well, let's try and do that. So um, we've got, I think we've called out everything. So Kabuki Strength, uh, uh, is it education.kabuki? Uh, Kabuki.education is the one just for the education, but uh, kabukistrength.com. Uh, my supplement line is buildfastformula.com, uh, which is sold on Amazon UK. Uh, and a uh, new company is Barefoot Athletics. Uh, that's uh, Right now we've just got a, a training toe sock with some grips on it, but we've got a few other products coming and hopefully um, some additional footwear in the future based on barefoot uh, mechanic stuff. Um, and uh, then Instagram. Yeah, you can find Instagram. Uh, most stuff, if you just type in my name, Chris Duffin, it'll pop up, but it's yeah. mad underscore scientist underscore Duffin, uh, Kabuki Strength. You'll find the coaching account, which has all of our educational material or the company account uh, as well. Um, on my Instagram profile is links to like all this stuff as well, as well as links to uh, the book where you can buy it on Amazon. Again, it's available in the UK. Uh, audio version just came out and Audible has a huge uh uh, uh, opportunity going on where you get two free books if you sign up. Uh, uh, and so it's got a link, uh, on there as well on how to get the, uh, the, basically the, my audio book for free, uh, along with another book. Uh, 
So uh, anyway, cool. all that stuff is uh, is available. Great. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I go through this recording, write down all those in the show notes so everyone can find all your stuff easily. It has been incredible. Thank you for being generous with your time, generous with your wisdom, really helpful in this discussion for me as an individual, and I'm sure for others who listen to it. I'm going to let you crack on and do the, do what you do, Chris, but thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure and honor. It's been great. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, man. So what do you reckon? You a fan of Chris yet? If so, get into the show notes. There are tons of links that you can go click through to the social media stuff, through to the education stuff, and some of his products and companies. But guys, before you go, I just want to just say that the adaptation.io website is gaining in popularity too. We have free workouts there with hundreds of fantastic yummy meals. We've got great articles, some of the best articles you'll find online across strength, health and mindset. And there's journals pursuing my two-year body goal, which is almost coming to an end. So there's tons of stuff there, all with the focus of helping you be your best. It's a self-optimization platform. I think you'll like it. There's loads to see. And if you never want to miss out on the content that gets released on a weekly basis, just sign up to the email newsletter, which is right at the top and also dotted throughout the website. Enjoy, guys. I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might also enjoy the show. Thanks for listening. This is Adapt Nation.